invite you this evening to turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke's Gospel chapter 10. As we resume our studies in the Gospel of Luke, we've taken some time away from this study on Sunday evenings, and we come back with the prospect of most of our Lord's Day evenings going through the Gospel of Luke. Rousing theme, rousing tune of the hymn we just sang together, who will follow, who will follow our Lord, who will follow the martyrs. It's one of the most powerful things in church history is seeing these unassuming characters laying down their life for Christ with such courage. And what is sad about many of us in one sense is that there are stories being written today that we know nothing or very little about. Christians that are laying down their lives also at this present hour, and continually it has been throughout the entirety of history, those laying down their lives for Christ. We owe it to ourselves, and we owe it to those the Lord appoints in His providence that can instruct us so helpfully in their devotion and the particular circumstances of their suffering. And I encourage you again to read If you're not reading something at this very present hour relating to whether it's theology or some other subject, but I encourage amidst your time of reading something Christian, which you should be doing at all times, I encourage you to read history as well. There are books available, there are encouragements for you in our own book room, and pretty much anything there will be of encouragement to you. So please keep that in mind and always be feeding the soul of things that provoke us to love and to good works. So we come to Luke chapter 10, and we want to read the opening verses of this chapter. We broke at the end of chapter 9 and returned to this subject after many weeks to pick up again in Luke chapter 10, and we want to read the opening verses. So let us hear the word of the Lord with the Scriptures open before you. Let us consider what is given here to us. Luke 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse, nor scrip, nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Amen. Ending our reading at the twelfth verse. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's seek the Lord for, again, His help in this part of our service. Lord, we ask for the grace we need to be faithful. When we're singing about the faithfulness of others, we are encouraged that they suffered by Thy grace, and they were triumphant by Thy grace. And none of us know what a day may bring forth, and what path Thou hast sovereignly and providentially will bring our way, what we will face, what we will be called upon to endure. We can't write the story of our own lives. 
And in one sense, we're very glad. What a mess we would make if we had our way all the time. We surrender our lives to Thee. We pray, God, that Thou wilt write our story in whatever way would magnify Christ and give us grace to surrender our wills to that narrative, to that story. We pray that Thou wilt draw near to us, fill us with Thy Spirit even in these moments. Bring that that strange hush when the Lord draws near into this assembly. Advance Thy kingdom in the hearts of men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to very briefly remind you that as we come into Luke chapter 10, we do so on the back of a chapter that has placed great emphasis upon discipleship. There's a sense in which it goes back beyond Luke chapter 9, but I'm going to limit myself just to the chapter previously and remind you of that fact because one of the things that we don't want to miss in our reading and gleaning from this gospel is its application to you and to me. The emphasis that is placed The leading of the Spirit and the writing of this gospel is very particular in certain segments to help us understand what it is to be a follower of Christ. And we don't want to glean over the details and miss the emphasis that is placed upon your life. That to truly know Christ is to be a disciple of Christ. It is to be resigned to Him in every conceivable way. You can think, if you were to look back to the chapter, I could just give you some aspects of discipleship, both in the positive reflection as well as in the negative, that you can find through Luke chapter 9. I've given these little sort of titles for various portions. The opening six verses, you have the mission of true disciples, where the twelve are called together. They're sent to preach the kingdom of God. That's their primary mission. You have the persecution of true disciples in verses 7 through 9, where we have mention of John and his beheading in verse 9. You have the examination of true disciples in verses 10 through 17, which is actually Luke's record of the feeding of the 5,000, which we know our Lord used to be an examination of true disciples. It was in that event, it was rather the next day after that event, where he speaks to the multitudes and they forsake him, they leave, they go their way, and he then says to the twelve, will he also go away? So it becomes this kind of uh, event of examination of those who are true. We have the confession of true disciples, verses 18 through 20, where we have that great confession of who Christ is. We have the resignation of true disciples, verses 23 through 26, where he calls them to, if anyone's really going to come after me, they must be in this state of denial and taking up their cross daily and following him, losing their life, and so on and so forth. An utter resignation to Christ and his will. We have the communion of of true disciples in verses 28 through 36, where they're taken up into a mount to pray. And there you have the Lord again emphasizing, among other things, this importance of, of communion with God. You have the limitations of true disciples. They come down, verse 37, and they're faced with this particular scenario where they can't cast out that which is in the man's son, and he's crying out for help. And so they learn their limitations and their need not to look to themselves for power, but to wait on the Lord with fasting and prayer. You have the condescension of true disciples, verse 44 and following, where he he calls them again to, 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 to... recognize certain things that they were ignorant to. So, so there they are, uh, reasoning among themselves, who should be greatest? You've also the, the event of verse 49, where they see one casting out devils, and Christ is calling them to condescend. Don't elevate yourself. It's not about you. And whenever you look at others serving me, condescend to them also. And then the consecration of true disciples, verse 57 through to the end, where the examples are given of those who feel to truly follow the Lord, and they aren't consecrated to the cause the way they should. That's just a a flying through, Luke chapter 9. And again, my point is this, 
There are many passages, many portions where there's this singular focus on Christ and his parables and what he's teaching and so on and so forth. And, and, and Luke will do that as well. But in, in this portion, there is this constant theme of devotion, of commitment, of, of the life of a true follower of Christ. And this is a lifelong lesson that we are to be engaged in learning continually what it means to truly be submitted to Christ. It's very easy for us to, in our own minds, frame a certain way that the Christian life should be lived without, and, and finding ways to, to do so, to limit and to uh, make it as palatable as possible. And we all do it. There's not anyone who does not. We, we, we want to... We want to see ourselves doing well. And part of the way to do that is to lower the standard. One of the arguments that has been raised in various quarters in recent times, I don't know if it, I mean, America is a very different beast in terms of its education. And it's so disjointed and different states do things differently and different universities and so on and so forth. But obviously, in a place like the United Kingdom and other European countries, it's, very, it's the same right across the board. Everyone does the same tests and so on and so forth. And one of the things I've seen in my lifetime has been a change in the kind of grades that people get. So when I was 16, 17, 18... When we, we have from 17 to 18, you do your A-levels. That's just the, the term given to those final exams before you go into university. And when it came to A-levels, most would do three subjects for their A-levels. If you were knowingly gifted, maybe, maybe you would do four. It was very rare. Very few people would have known anyone who would do four A-levels. Uh, but, but that was the way it was. And, and then the kind of grades that people got, and I'm talking here, the brightest of the bunch, those who go into medical school, I mean, they might get, uh, maybe get three A's, maybe, maybe two A's and a B, this kind of thing. If you managed to get two B's and a C, that, that was common and you had done well. And th- this was understood. It was understood. That was, it was difficult. It was intended to be difficult. And the marking was difficult. Well, within about 10 to 15 years, you have this whole host of people who are getting A's and people doing five A-levels, and, and they're getting A's across the board, and you're thinking, what? Something's changed. It's not that they've like rapidly gotten way smarter in the space of 10 or 15 years. Something has changed, and the immediate way of looking at it is they're lowering the bar. They have to be. It has to be becoming easier in some way. We don't want to do that as Christians. We want to understand what our Lord taught. We want to understand what those of a prior generation understood was the commitment to Christ. We want to accept it, repent of our sins and shortcomings in those areas, and follow in their train. So, tonight we come to the work of the seventh day. And this this, uh, whole section goes a little farther. I think it's to verse 24 where it deals with these, these themes around the seventh day and their return and so on. But we'll look at the opening 12 verses as the Lord gives us help tonight as we consider the work of the seventh day. And note firstly, the mission explained. The mission explained. In verse 1, we read these words, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. In verse 1, dealing with the mission as the Lord explains, that we have here the strategy used. The strategy used. He appoints other seventy. And of course when he's writing this, we are to understand other 70 is, is making us remember what's previously given. And at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, you have the appointment of the 12. They are commissioned. They are sent. Now as we come into this segment, we are being told there's another 70 that have been appointed by our Lord. The word appointed is actually interesting because you will find it in only one other place in your New Testament in Acts chapter 1 verse 24 when the early church is trying to discern who to replace Judas with. 
verse 24, they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether these two thou hast chosen. Show. What you have translated as show in your authorized version is appointed. It's the same word. And the word signifies this sense of, of something being indicated, being raised aloft as a torch to display, to manifest, to show plainly or openly, to mark out, constitute, a point by some outward sign. The sense is really this. What, what the word is driving at is the appointment of the 70 was visible. It's not internal. These are not people self-appointed to go out and feel themselves commissioned to what Christ is calling them to. It's a very visible appointment. And everyone around, if there were multitudes gathered, if there were others aside from the 70 and aside from the 12 that are there watching on, it's a very public appointment whereby everyone knows these are the 70. And they're not in the business of doing it themselves. I've made reference to this on other occasions. I think it needs to be stated in a day, and particularly in this part of the world, because there, is, there are influences where there may be certain undergirding philosophies in a culture that get transferred to other areas they've no business being transferred to. What I mean is, in a country where there's a great emphasis on individualism and own, your own personal liberty that you transfer that to God's work and you say that I believe God has called me, I'm going to go into the work, and there's no reference to any outside part or body. And it's unbiblical. So the Lord appoints 70. You think of this, and immediately your mind may go to the event that we're told of in Numbers chapter 11, where Moses appoints 70 elders for the task that they were dealing with there over Israel. So there's a sense in which there is this message that in other ways has already been communicated and is now being communicated again that this is the prophet that Moses said should come. Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy of one that would come like unto me. And that becomes a very important passage, not just in terms of our analysis of the Old Testament revelation, but it comes forth in the New Testament as well. There are other places, but one example is in Acts 3, verse 22, when you have this being referred to, Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. I think Stephen also makes reference to it as well in Acts chapter 7. And so you have here another little indication that Christ is that prophet. And like Moses, who appointed 70 others, you have our Lord appointing another 70. But he sends them, we're told, look at it, sent them two and two. He sent them two and two. Why? You could send 70, and those 70 could reach 70 cities and villages. If you send them two by two, now you can only reach 35 at any one moment of time. So why split them up? I can't say for sure. But I think there are some evidences in Scripture as to the wisdom of it. There's the plain statement of Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one. But in certain contexts, of course, as we know from the law of Moses, there's a requirement for at least two witnesses in any given matter that may be dealt with to establish what is being said. And so they're going there to bear witness to something. One man comes and says, the Messiah is coming prepare, is not, as that, is not as significant as two going and saying, look, he is coming. So they are sent out two by two. There are all sorts of practical reasons why it may be helpful too, uh, in terms of helping and supporting each other, and when one's down, the other being the encouragement. I mean, it's one of the tips, isn't it, when it comes to the January and everyone gets this revitalized interest and losing a few pounds and one of the tips is get a friend 
get someone to go with you. Have, have your gym friend and your walking buddy or whatever, you know, because you hold each other accountable. So there are all sorts of practical reasons that may be examined there. But aside from all of that, you have it plainly stated. He sends them two by two before his face into every city and place. And so they're to go whether he himself would come. And so there's strategy here. There's the evangelistic strategy. The Lord intends to go. Now we're at the point where he is slowly making his way to Jerusalem. And he's going to take this long route, making his way to Jerusalem, ultimately to offer himself without spot unto God. But there's strategy in the approach. And between the feasts that would call him to go to Jerusalem and return back to this particular ministry, he strategically sends the 70 to go to each city and place where he himself would come. But note also here, not only the strategy used in this mission, but the scale of what's needed, the scale of what's needed. Verse 2, Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Our Lord speaks of a harvest. This language is used in another place. You may be familiar with it in Matthew chapter 9. He talks there of a harvest. On that occasion, we actually get a little more context of where our Lord is in terms of his perception of what he's dealing with. Because it tells us, prior to him saying this, these words, it tells us that he looked upon the multitude and had compassion on them. And then he says, the harvest is great, the labors are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth more labors. I think that context and, let's say, the, the compassion of Christ seeing this need and understanding the scale of what they were dealing with is important to remember because when Christ would speak of a harvest, the mind of the Jew does not immediately go to something positive. The Jew would think in terms of judgment. Now, there are other passages that may be looked at, but in Joel, we were there last week in chapter 2, 1 and 2, but in chapter 3, it makes reference to this harvest terminology. And you may turn there if you'd like, but I'll read to you some of the verses from Joel chapter 3. Verses 12 and following, we are told, let the heathen be wakened. So this is, these are those who are unbelievers. It's looking to a day the heathen need to be awakened. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So if you're a Jew and you're thinking, you're, 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 this is the passage, I say harvest, you think the words of Jesus. Jesus says harvest, they think the words of the prophet. And their mind is going to judgment. And there's good reason to. Even our Lord in Matthew 13 speaks of the final harvest. It's not like they had gotten it wrong. There is a final harvest. We are all headed. We are all headed. Men and women, we are all headed into a harvest. We are. We are going into a day of reckoning, a tribunal before the Almighty God. Harvest always indicates judgment. It's, it's the sense that the time, the time is coming of cutting down, of sifting, of bringing to a close a certain period of time. You see it also in Revelation 14, but I'll not 
turn there tonight. But here's the thing. The judgment begins now. It begins now. And the way in which the Lord is dealing with this, the fact the whole world is hurtling into judgment and a final harvest is to step back and give another perspective to his disciples and say there's a harvest ongoing now. There's a harvest of reaping in those who will respond to the gospel, of preparing them for the final harvest, calling them in to the kingdom, beckoning them into grace. And so as I was musing on this, here's a simple reality. God's answer to bring the final epoch of time to a close with a great harvest is to have preachers. Preachers that are called, prepared, tested, proved, and sent. Sent to gather in those that will respond positively. Now, there will be a negative side to the work even of the 70, and, and we will get to that. And certainly, we will see the strong language of our Lord, God willing, next week. But there is this, this, this scale, this scale. The harvest truly is great. There's this harvest. And the compassion of our Lord is being extended here amidst His, his knowledge of the final harvest, of the, of the final determinant of where men will be. In his compassion, he is reaching out to men in time and his heart of compassion is saying, the work is so monumental, so expansive and the laborers are so few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. We pray this regularly. I put it before you each Lord's Day. I trust, may forget on occasion, but the emphasis is not without a sense of purpose and being deliberate. When our Lord presents a calamity, when he presents scenes of judgment, but there's a period of mercy, the day of grace before the day of the Lord. And his lament is, they're not enough. This, this is a sense, there are not enough, it seems, to complete the task. Have you ever felt that? Have you, have you ever been in the position where... You have this, this task, you're, you're burdened about completing it, and it feels like you're, there are not, not enough hands on deck. And you're wondering, will it be done? Will it be accomplished? How will the matter fall? It's, it's, it's stressful. It is stressful. And I'm not saying that our Lord responds with the kind of stress that is common to you and to me, but He is certainly using language, pressing Rubbing in this sense, this needs to be at the forefront of your mind. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore. Pray ye therefore. So I say to you again, beloved, be always in prayer on this matter. If we were to live through a day, whether we see what we might determine revival or not, but if we were to live through a day where there was the raising up of an army of preachers who truly had their hearts touched by God, of men of humility and commitment resolve, passion. It would be indication of great mercy to whatever land those people, those men and women may be sent.
So the mission explained, we have seen the strategy used and the scale of what's needed. But secondly, the mindset required. The mindset required. Now some of these things we have dealt with already, so I will not go over it and belabor the point. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon at the beginning of Luke 9, where some of these themes are dealt with when he spoke to the twelve, that is our Lord. But let's just look at it very simply. In terms of the mindset required, verse 3, prepare for difficulty. Prepare for difficulty. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. (laughs) I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Yes. Being sent forth with language that would indicate your vulnerability. What defense does a lamb have have against a wolf? Nothing. His only defense is a shepherd. You're to learn that you don't have the tools to defend yourself against the world. You're going into a place of wolves. Christ is... Extremely honest here, is he not? Remarkably so. He appoints to 70. You can see them all there. You know, a certain sense of, I don't want to say pride, but a little bit, you know, a sense of, you know, appreciation of being appointed to this task. The privilege that comes with it. And in terms of preparing them, the first things, thing he says to them is, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what our seminaries kind of say in terms of like preparation. It's not the advertising slogan that they use. You come here, we'll send you forth as lambs among wolves. That's not what we say. That's what the Lord said. Why? Turn to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, do you see that the same thing is said to the twelve? Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There needs to be a certain mentality in those that labor for the Lord. An awareness of what they're getting into and what they're dealing with. A shrewdness almost we might say. That is in their mind. It's not that they are relying upon themselves, but they're recognizing the difficulty that they've been thrown into to labor for the kingdom of Christ amidst this world. And so here's the thing. He goes on to explain a little more. They're being sent as sheep in the midst of wolves. They're to be wise as serpent, harmless as doves. Here's why it's important. Beware of men. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils And they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. So you're going to go among men that will want to destroy you. If they have their way. They will look for ways to destroy you. They will endeavor to destroy you. They will deliver you up to the councils. Don't imagine you'll get protection all the time from men. They will deliver you up. They may even befriend you first before they deliver you up, as in the case, the well-known case of William Tyndale. And deliver you up. They will scourge you in their synagogues. 
It will make a spectacle of you. And you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. You will, you will be brought before them, not to be lifted up with them, but to give a defense before them for me. This, this, this happens, this occurs. Christians get tested by men around them. And there are seasons, there are seasons in which, and we've had a long history where this hasn't really been commonplace in North America, but we have entered those days, have we not? We are getting to the point we know, without rehearsing it and going down that rabbit trail again, we are aware of those that are being delivered up and have been delivered up, sometimes even by their own brethren in the church. such things happen, you feel your vulnerability. No one wants to maybe even listen to your case. Maybe you can present the most logical case possible, and still it's dismissed because you're you're dealing with a wolf. This is not a level playing field. And that world out there will destroy you. So I say, the mindset required begins, prepare for difficulty. So young men, with 40 years perhaps, and even more, of gospel ministry ahead of you. There's a trajectory we're on. And it looks like you're going to get acquainted with the wolves of our day. Are you prepared? Young people in general, not, not even thinking of those in ministry. Christians are going to, Christians, let me rephrase, are, are presently dealing with this. I'm actually in one sense a little bit excited. I am. I'm a little bit excited about what the Lord is going to do. When Christians have their backs put into the corner and they begin to wonder, my conscience tells me this, and yet if I don't follow through on what they're asking, then I will lose my job or lose something else, some other status or liberties or privileges. All, all, those, all that language of threat is coming. It's coming. It's, it's already been stated by, by certain individuals. And again, I, I, I can't go down that road. But it's here, and I hope I don't need to illustrate it with examples every week. It, it's going on. And I'm a little bit excited because because God always turns things to His glory. And the pit that they've dug for, them, for you, they fall into themselves. And I'm just wondering how the Lord's going to deal with this. I see an explosion of entrepreneurial spirit. I do. I see an explosion of those who were too fearful to follow through on something that has been simmering in their mind, a business idea, something, simmering away, and they just have had the, the, the lack of, of drive to go and push forward with it. And, you know, the salary and the position is, is very appealing, and they just stay there, that's predictable. But they're getting to a point, and they're going to weigh this up, and they're going to be driven. And it's going to explode. The Lord is going to use this. I, I see it. I see it. He's, they're going to go out there, and whether we see it on a global scale, I'm not talking about massive corporations, I'm talking about Christian-run businesses filling the cities and the towns. That's, that's, that's what I hope will happen. I, that's what I think will happen. So I'm not all that worried about it. I do, my heart goes out to those who feel themselves in a great predicament. But as I have shared, I can see how the Lord will work this for good for many of them. So, and let me just say that, that, that's, that is, if you can offer that to your community, if you can start a business and employ, and employ good Christians, do it. 
Do it with all your heart. Don't hold back. So prepare for difficulty. Act with urgency. Verse 4. Carry neither purse nor script nor shoes and salute no man by the way. Look, don't, don't be... We, we considered this back in Luke 9.3, so I don't want to go over everything I said there. But in addition to what I said, there's, there's a sense of urgency here where... Don't, don't be bothered. Don't cumber yourself with these things. Just get straight to the work. Don't, don't carry money. Don't be trying to gather funds. Don't spend your time doing that. Don't get, don't get your scrip. That's where you keep your provisions. That's your leather and sack that travelers and shepherds would use to carry their provisions, food for the next day or two. No extra shoes, whatever. Don't, don't, don't do that. Just, just. And here's the other thing. Salute no man by the way. Now, now, just stepping back here and just a, a reminder, in case you'd forget or you weren't here. When the Lord says this, he's not, making, he's not instituting this for every servant of Christ. He's not. Luke chapter 22, verses 35 and 36, to remind you again. Jesus there tells his disciples, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise a scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So, so he tells them later to, to go about these things. And I just underline that lest someone should, should read this and think, Oh, it's wrong. It's wrong. We, 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 we live in unbelief when we carry our purses and our scripts and everything else. Whatever the modern equivalents are. And that's not the case. That's not the case. It's, he, he tells them the, later on, he said, go ahead, go ahead and do so. So the question then comes back, just because you probably won't go back and listen to Luke 9. But the question then arises is, well, what's the point? Is our Lord being contradictory? And I would say, no, no, he's not being contradictory. He is preparing them. He is preparing them. And he puts his people through periods of hardship and difficulty. He does. He puts them, he puts them right there in the heart where it's difficult, so they learn to trust. Not necessarily that they live the same way. Put it this way. Many of you have gone through college or a period similar to that where you're scraping by, you're barely getting by at all. Some of us go through that when we've already been married and we have children to feed and all the rest of it. And you're in college. And let me say, you're, you're just hanging in there. Okay? You're, you're hanging in there. But the intent of our Lord is not to keep you constantly through life just hanging in there. There's absolutely no scriptural warrant, none, for people deliberately to live perpetually in a condition of just hanging in there. Because if that was the case, you will never have to give to those in need. Which means you never know the blessing the greater blessing, where he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So to live perpetually there, of your own accord, has no warrant. But he may call you to it, and he may even keep you in it. But it's not something to step into and embrace yourself. But they are not to, and this is where I want to emphasize what's a little different here. Salute no man, by the way. And I, I think the sense here is, don't talk to people as you go along, trying to make friends to make up for what you're in want of, right? So you, you meet people along the way, and you stop, and you start talking to them, and you communicate with them in such a way that they may invite you to their home, and so on and so forth. And you're trying to get help. So don't do it on the way. Get right to where you're meant to go. Okay? Get to your final destination. Get to the city and the village where you're meant to go. And again, the sense there then is urgency. Get there. Get there. Don't stop. Don't hesitate. Don't think, well, there's a poor lost soul over here. You're not called to it. Get to the place where I'm sending you. Go. You can't reach everyone. The Lord made that plain himself. He said, I'm not called but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Sometimes I wonder even in John chapter 12 when the Greeks came to, and, and spoke to Andrew and, and, 
and said we would see Jesus. I, I, I wonder there with Philip and Andrew, I, I wonder if they actually did let them see Jesus. It doesn't tell us that they actually saw him. And I wonder if he, because that wasn't his focus at the time, that's another issue. Verses 5 and 6, speak with courtesy. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. When he speaks in verse 6 of the Son of Peace be there, that is language that's commonly used, the child of. Is the child of peace there? Is the child of something? In other words, true believer. That's just another language for a true believer. Someone who truly believes. If there's a true believer there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. What's interesting is that our Lord's evangelistic method begins not with the lost, but with the believing. When you go into a city, find the home where someone believes. Are they not an evangelistic campaign? Seeking to warn the lost? Yes. Yet he says, begin, begin, find if there be one who is a son of peace. Most church planting efforts begin this way anyway. You go to an area because there are people there who want you to be there. There are families, there are a group of people there who, who have rallied and said, look, we want you to be here, to minister here. And you can see how it's based even in Scripture. Who's accepting of the message? Build from there into the community. If not, it shall turn to you again. That is, if they reject the gospel, walk away. Walk away. You're not a failure. Their unbelief doesn't make you a failure. Walk away. Is this not again undergirding even the point we made this morning that in terms of evangelistic work, it is entirely the work of God. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. If it depended on man, if it depended on us persuading by reason, purely, and making the arguments that convince them absolutely that this is the truth and so on and so forth, if that's the basis, if that's how we win people to Christ, then the onus also comes back on the preacher who must find the methodology and the arguments and the persuasive tactics to convince these people to respond in the intended fashion. Christ doesn't say that. You go there, you present the message. If they reject it, you leave. It's extremely liberating. <laughs> extremely liberating. Not that we become indifferent. No, 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 no. No, it shouldn't make us indifferent. I think you see this. You, you see Paul, don't you? In Acts 18, you see Paul dealing with the unbelief of the Jews, washing his hands of the blood, and you can see he puts you know, object lesson before them of their unbelief. And he is troubled by it all. You, I think you see that in the passage, but at the same side you see the internal struggle in Romans. And my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So it doesn't take the reality of them being responsible for their unbelief and allow it to make him indifferent and hardened. So you present the gospel to your loved ones, Christian your work callings, to your neighbors, you present it. And if they don't hear it and receive it, weep in private. And weep over their souls, but don't beat yourself up as if you're somehow the failure you're not. 
You're not. So you speak with courtesy. You go over there and there's a courteous spirit. You know, whether that's whatsoever house she enter, first say, peace be to this house. I mean, it's an argument for just plain courtesy, isn't it? And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, shall turn to you again. So we then move on. Sojourn with sensitivity. Sojourn with sensitivity. Verse 7 and 8. And in the same house, remain. Okay, this is with the assumption that your peace can rest upon it because they're believers. In the same house, remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire, though not from house to house. Into whatsoever city ye enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Did I share that before? Did I share about the conviction that I came under when I went to Bible college to visit one time? I was going just to see what the Bible college was all about. There I am in Northern Ireland going to see, get this, they have an annual open day. And there you go, you go there and have a look around. And then they invited me, hey, do you want to stay for lunch? I said, sure, I'll stay for lunch. Well, I grew up and the entirety of my childhood, my mother always condescended to my pickiness when it came to vegetables. I only like raw veg, certain raw veg, not all raw veg, but certain raw veg. Uh, my potatoes would be cooked, but, but raw broccoli, raw cauliflower, you know, those kind of things. I, I, if they cooked them, I, the smell, the texture, the salt, just, no, wasn't interested in any of that. And my mother always condescended to that. And I think when I went to visit the college the first time, I wasn't married, so my wife would then condescend as well. But here's what happened. I go there, and I put lunch in front of me, and there's a plate of cooked veg. Boiled celery. And whatever else there was on that plate. And so someone's appointed the matron and said, you know, Patrick Baker, whatever he was, you give thanks for the food. And so our brother bows his head and gives thanks. And I'm there, Lord, you're going to have to help me here. And this passage was what comes to mind right here. <laughs> Eat such things as are set before you. Oh, I'm like, Lord, you're going to have to help. And so I prayed and I ate every bit of it that was on the plate. And I spent the years, the first two years that you're in college, you eat lunch with them, with those that I didn't live in, but I ate lunch with those that lived in for the first two years of college. And, and there was cooked veg all the time. And I learned to eat it and thank the Lord for it. And you know what's it's an important test, isn't it? Isn't it? Do you think this is insignificant? Of all the things the Lord could say, of all the things of preparing them for ministry, He tells them, whatever they put on the table, you eat. I mean, this, this, is, this gets right down to the fact that Common sense isn't always as common as we might imagine. This is real discipleship. And we had some of this in college too, where there were no assumptions made about what people knew and didn't know. And it got right down to basic things. What's expected of you when you're in people's home and all the rest of it? And I'm sitting there going, really, we have to be told this stuff? You know, did we not have parents that taught us these things? But, the, but there are things that we, we either forget or we weren't taught or we, they weren't drummed into us. And our Lord, our Lord. And I think what's significant here also is, is almost paving away. I don't want to insinuate too much, but paving away for the breaking down of the Levitical food dietary laws and all the rest of it. When you travel around, they put things in front of you that you don't normally eat. You eat it and you're thankful for it. Some men need that in terms of their wives too. I'm not saying there isn't a place for discussion with their wives and saying, you know, I prefer that or like that. She may ask, she may, she may say, do, do you like this and like that? You then, especially when she asks, you can talk to her about it. You can say, well, you know, whatever. But please, be sensitive to someone who labors. Yes, preparation of meals 
is a labor. And how do you like it when you do your day's work and the boss comes in and the only thing he has to say is critical? And your wife labors, makes the meals, and all you have to say is something critical. God forgive you. God forgive you. Open your eyes. You know, even a basic manners toward the one that you're to lay down your life for. As Christ loved the church. So we, we sojourn with sensitivity. We come in and recognize that we are to, again, not go from house to house, right? Now just look at some of the statements that are made here. Don't go to, from house to house. I think part, again, of what's underlying this is this is what the false prophets do. They keep moving around until they find the most perfect little spot or the wealthy and they pull out everything they can then they move on to the next victim. Don't be that person. In addition, you are worthy of your hire. In other words, you have a right to the burden of your presence in the home when you're ministering in this way is legitimate. Don't feel guilty about it. And into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. I think we've said enough in relation to that. So we come thirdly then, the message assigned. What's the message assigned? Verse 9, we have first, it's one of deliverance. Heal the sick that are therein. That's what you've come to do. You've come to set people free. You've come, and they have been particularly assigned and equipped for this aspect of ministry. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole argument of whether we can just perform miraculous works and see people healed today. There's a place for miraculous healing, but not in the way that they're doing here, not in the way the apostles did. Let me just lay out something I said before. In transitional eras, follow me, in transitional eras, God often in those transitions appointed peculiar power for those that helped with that transition. And so you have the transition at the time of Moses and Joshua. That's a huge shift of transition. You have the Hebrews in bondage in Egypt. They're becoming a nation. This is a transition. This is a huge shift. And they're going to see miracles to help authenticate the message that's being communicated. You have another shift in terms of prophetic influence. Before, it's, it's, the, it's the priests, it's the Levites. They're the ones who are the dominant voices in the community teaching spiritual things. But God's going to use another instrument. He's going to use someone called a prophet. Now, already, Moses was already a prophet. Don't get me wrong. David was a certain prophet. But there's a transition to these, these, these figures in the community that are very distinct for one thing. They are prophets. And Elijah and Elisha oversee that transition. You find miracles again. And then you have a transition with the time of Christ and the apostles. And miracles raise their head again because it's a period of transition and the message needs to be authenticated in order to drive it home. So they heal the sick. That's deliverance. They're bringing a message of deliverance. We're here to deliver. Not to condemn, but to deliver. It is also one of decision. Say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. That demands a response. It demands a response. And let me say, let me say, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. It is here tonight. The kingdom of God is there. Christ comes by, by His Word, and He offers Himself. He offers forgiveness. He offers deliverance, pardon for your sin, a full, free removal of your condemnation, acceptance before God. He offers it on the ground of a sacrifice. He gives reason and credence to the Father that you would be accepted forever and adopted into the family of God by means of His own merit in what He did. And it is, it's offered to you. But you have to accept Christ as king. 
You have to accept him as Lord, as Savior, as having dominion over your life. You're no longer ruling over your own domain. You have fallen at his feet. And so they call them then. It's decision time. When, when they walk into that place and they say the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you, it's decision time. For any in that home that still are in doubt or those that can hear whatever's being communicated, they're being called to submit to the king who's about to come their way. And it's also one of discrimination. It's a message of discrimination. Verse 11 Let's read from verse 10. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same and say. So you've been rejected. What do you do? Drop your head and just disappear without any squeak or noise? No. You go in the most public area. And you declare even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us we do wipe off against you. We treat you like heathens. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. The opportunity is right there. Don't think, don't think that you'll have an excuse on that day of judgment, on that great reaping season. I didn't know. Oh, you did. Oh, you did. I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Oh, Sodom had so few benefits. The one man who knew God in their midst was all out of sorts. He's not walking with God. It wasn't Abraham in their midst. It was Lot. And they didn't have the oracles of God, the scriptures, the miracles, the evidences. So there are degrees of suffering. And Sodom will suffer less. And those of you who've had Christ put before you, and you've rejected it. These are solemn words. Discriminatory language. None of us like to imagine that day of judgment or the reality of it. Christ never shied away from it and he told his disciples the same thing. Don't you shy away from it. They need to know. In fact, you stand in the middle of their streets and you let them know. You go to the most public area and you let them know. The mercy has come their way and they have said no. Mercy has come your way. Could it be that one here tonight is not saved? That the kingdom of God comes nigh unto you, perhaps daily, and you're still not saved? The Lord have mercy on you. Let's bow together in prayer. Let me say to you, if you are in a condition, in a state of unbelief, uncertainty about your soul, wondering whether you're ready to meet your God, now is the time to talk about the matter. And I'll be available to you. You let me know. I'll be happy to listen to your fears and concerns, whatever else may be on your heart, but my my invitation to you is as a servant of Christ to, to let you know if you need to talk about your soul, please do so. And do so tonight. Lord, we pray that Thou will bless Thy Word. We ask that there would be a raising up of more laborers. We plead with Thee amidst the expansive harvest that there is today 
that thou wilt look in mercy on our generation and place thy hand upon an army of heralds of thy word. Be with those who do herald the word. O God, we care little about the name over their buildings and that distinguish their assemblies. We plead, Lord in heaven, that thou wilt bless and empower the heralds of the gospel. Gather in souls. Be with the persecuted church. Those who are suffering as lambs amidst wolves. We ask, Lord, that you'll continue then to mercifully be with those in this gathering that still wrestle. Wrestle with their unbelief. God, call them to thyself. Hear our prayers. Be with us in our fellowship. And go with us through this week. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.